Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Even the Score podcast, a podcast about soundtracks and scores for movies, TV shows, and video games. I am, as always, Don, and I am joined once again by my co-host, Anthony and Jason. Hello to you both. Hi, diddly ho. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've got another lovely genre topic to discuss today. We're going to dive into our favorite cult classics. So we've got a little bit of a breakdown going for our main topic here. We are going to get into our typical segment, what you're listening to. But before that, we have to get the report. As discussed in our last episode, Jason and I wanted to hear about Anthony's thoughts on the Disney movie Encanto. Jason and I had some very differing thoughts uh, from kind of the masses about the movie. And uh, since our last record, Anthony has had the pleasure of viewing Encanto. So I think we should just pass it over to our friend Anthony and get a sense of how did you feel about Encanto? I think I can sum it up by saying I'm going to talk a lot about Bruno. We don't no, talk about lot. Bruno. <laughs> Never. I ever. know that's what that's what the song says. But I have to say that I absolutely loved Encanto. I thought it was such a good deviation from their typical story structure that relied on a very tangible villain. I love that there was mystery to it. So even though you have Bruno having, you know, his pro- uh, prophecies, there's still this notion of like, you're not sure what's going on. So there's a slowly unfolding mystery that's happening. I love the protagonist, Maribel. I thought she was so perfect as a lead. Uh, I saw a lot of myself in her. I thought the songs were incredible. I just, uh, a lot of people, like I've even seen clickbaity articles being uh, saying things like, uh, Encanto is number one, you know, we don't talk about Bruno is number one and the, the soundtrack is a hit, but is the music any good? To me, I'm like, that's a, that's super objective. Like, obviously, some people are not going to enjoy the music, and some people will enjoy the music. I'm definitely on the side that I love it. But one thing I've noticed is that a, a lot of purists of Lin-Manuel Miranda don't like Encanto. Oh, they really? think it's like his pandering work. They think it's a little too cheesy, a little too simple. But what I found with it is that... I felt it was the best Disney songs, use of Disney songs in a really long time. So, yeah, I don't know. I thought it was a phenomenal movie. I thought it was a great story about intergenerational trauma and about how grandparents and parents can impact their children, which is obviously a story, well, not obviously, but is a story that I have lived. I'm a first-generation Canadian. My dad is a, he uh, immigrated here when he was like six. So I've experienced some of the things that happened in Encanto with this whole, you know, first generation raising their kids and this like concept of not having gifts. Anyway, I could go on for hours about how much I enjoyed Encanto. So I guess that's what I wanted to present to you guys who didn't like it. (laughs) I think I would agree absolutely with the music element. Definitely subjective, very personal. Like, I think that was the strongest point for me. I I thought the songs were so very Lin-Manuel Miranda compared to kind of the music that he was doing for In the Heights and uh, Hamilton. It just, it felt very much like his style. So I'm surprised that the purists are all claiming, oh, it's, it's so not him and very pandering. I thought they were quite great. And I think in connection to the story it they worked really well with the characters jason what are your thoughts on anthony's review i mean (laughs) 
You know, if it wasn't for what you said and me believing, you know, your sentiment on Luca, I'm almost like, man, I should go watch that. Because, like, I just, I, I'm still on the other side of the fence, man. Like, I... That's interesting. I, the music is probably the only strength from that film. That was, like, the one thing that I did find myself enjoying. And, well, okay, aside from the representation, I mean, I did like seeing different type of animated characters on the screen. But beyond that... Somehow you saw something cool in the deviation from the Disney formula, but it probably could have been done in a way where the formula was still preserved and the point of the family had gotten across, but there were just too many plot holes, man. I I, I just, the music was really the only saving grace to me. So one of the things that I noticed throughout the whole movie was, again, it's deviation. And I kept thinking about other movies that followed the same path. And in Pixar, it's actually pretty common in the later years where they don't actually have an antagonist. So I think about Inside Out, which is like led by character decisions and it doesn't really have like a solid villain character. The same thing with um, Soul. There was no antagonist in there that was just conflict with the relationships so i've seen different variations of this you know straying from away that traditional plot of a villain and i can see that there's been some success and some others that's not so i can take the the feedback that it's still a bit of a weaker story with full of plot holes and i would agree that yes there are definitely some big plot holes that even i as i was watching i was like uh it's a big leap of faith that they went there but I also allowed those plot holes and I didn't necessarily hold on to them because I was so enamored with the story, the music, the characters that even those small little things of like, who are these people that killed these, this village? (laughs) And like that whole concept of like, that wasn't really fulfilled. It was just this concept of, you know, uh, uh, like a characterization of evil. Another personal side of it for me, and this is going to like, I don't know if you guys will appreciate this, but I certainly do when I share it. Encanto for me also has a really specific memory now, because when I watched it with my partner, we were going through the entire movie, we were on board, we're loving it, I'm crying, it's getting to the point of the emotional climax, and you know, Maribel is crying down by the water, her abuela comes down and they're going to have their talk. And I'm sitting there and I'm like slowly weeping because I'm like, it's happening. Oh my God, they're going to talk about their feelings. (laughs) And as Abuela pauses for an emotional beat to say the like emotional crux of why and apologize, my partner let out the biggest fart ever. (laughs) And we laughed for 10 minutes, like just tears streaming down our face. We're like rolling over (laughs) holding our bellies because it just was like the most inappropriate time for something like that to happen and my boyfriend doesn't really fart a lot but when he saved it up and he let it go at that moment it was the funniest thing ever so i missed the entire emotional climax of the movie they hugged and i was like well i assume they they got through it (laughs) um but that's also a personal memory that i'm always going to remember in canto because salem just had his own gastrointestinal yeah. climax <laughs> well done so, resolved his anyway. inner conflict <laughs> yes <laughs> very loudly too excellent 
But yeah, I think some of my positive review might have something to do with that. <laughs> Completely understandable. And kind of going back to the idea that Pixar seems to have really gotten a sense of how to do these non-traditional stories where you have your antagonist protagonist and you just have that standard structure probably down a lot more pat than Disney. Maybe this is just the baby steps of Disney learning to get rid of its hundred plus year story structure and just try to maybe start to follow in suit with their partner corporation, which is Pixar, even though Pixar is a lot younger and they probably have a lot more ability to do that, more, navigate that water more quickly. Disney has a lot of baggage to get rid of. Totally. And you know, what's really interesting is because it really hasn't been talked about. And this is, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on Encanto because we have so many good cult movies to talk we about. do. But one of the interesting things about Pixar and Disney right now is that John Lasseter made his exit several years ago. And that was after a series of allegations that came out, you know, with regards to him being sexual harassing during the a lot of the production. But we also know that Jan Lasseter was a huge part of Pixar's story-based success. And so he kind of left very unceremoniously and quietly... But Jennifer Lee, who is the writer, uh, and I believe, no, I believe she was the writer, and I don't know if she was the director, but she wrote Frozen. And so she was actually brought on to Wreck-It Ralph, uh, and she also helped steer Frozen 2 to where it was. So she is now actually, I believe, taken over uh, for John Lasseter as like the, the lead. So with regards to the shift that they've been going away from, it's also because Jennifer Lee, I think, is making a big push to make changes in the story that Disney is telling. So, And maybe to put a bow on it for me, though, maybe I was a little too reductive in terms of saying that this deviated from the Disney formula. I feel like I haven't seen every movie you listed a little earlier but like even with like inside out and some of the other pixar films i still feel like the story was way better developed and yeah i suppose they didn't have pure sort of disney-esque antagonist exactly but where it started where it ended made a whole lot more sense to me than Encanto. so that's that's just my my two cents on it looking back when we talked about soul i wasn't the biggest soul fan I could probably still see the merits of Soul over Encanto, but again, I think it's just because they have more practice doing it, and we'll probably see Disney get better with this new head in place and removing some of the old guard and getting rid of some of those awful gentlemen who are gentlemen, awful men who are in there doing horrible, horrible things. So we will see. We will leave this discussion as is for now. Still feels like it's 2-1 against Encanto. That's completely fine. Our fans, I put a quick poll up on Twitter, is 100% pro Encanto, so Anthony's got the power of our fan base behind him so jason we will try to stand pat uh, i guess so <laughs> so what we will do now is we will go into our normal broadcasting day and get back into what you're listening to and i thought i might as well kick it off because i have finally been able to get back to theaters and i went and i saw the newest spider-man film yes which was incredible oh my god did you it, weep tears of joy i did i yes, legitimately yes. did <laughs> yes and I, of course, want to keep this a spoiler-free podcast because Anthony and I both living in Ontario. I mean, this is a new thing for us. Again, the movie theaters have reopened and I was able to find a theater that had a really late night showing. It was so brilliant. And that score, and I believe we're looking again at um, Giacchino. Michael Giacchino. Coming again. He brought everything with it and it hits so hard in the feels that the moments that i if you've seen it you know what i'm talking about it just builds and builds and builds and it's 
it's so beautiful and so brilliant and lots of choral work within there and lots of classic motifs and themes that you hear throughout. There's a lot of blending of different MCU properties because you've got Doctor Strange in there and Spider-Man. So lots of really great stuff there. That is the first thing I was listening to. And the other thing is actually I uh, I rented from our local library the Switch game Link's Awakening, which is the Switch remake of the Game Boy version of Link's Awakening. And I played that game when it first came out on original Game Boy with its classic 8-bit soundtrack. And to hear the same songs played again in a, a much more improved, orchestrated, beautiful way it was really lovely. And it just, it sent me right back. <laughs> Playing it in its improved version on the Switch, I mean, two, two and a half decades, th maybe even three decades at this point ago, and and to kind of have the same sort of experiences, remember some of the secrets and the things, it was it was quite something. And the the tunes were great. I really like how they just did simple sort of like string quartet for certain songs. They bring in a few different musical elements. And of course, Link's Awakening is all around musical instruments. So they had a lot of different um, music to make for that game. So it's quite elaborate and impressive. And those were the two things I was listening to. That's amazing. And also, can I just comment that you are such a CBC nerd, like borrowing a game from a library? I'm so jealous. I... Love the library, and I love engaging with the library. So the fact that you got a Switch game and, like, checked it out, ugh, 10 points to your house. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. uh, but either way, that is, those are some choice finds, I think. And shout out to libraries, though. I mean, because... Oh, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, the, the whole notion that you could go in and check out a video game is just so foreign to anything I remember when I actually regularly went into libraries. So, cool beans. Who's up next? I'll jump in because I, I I've got a video game to plug in here mm. too. Um, so one thing, uh, like one album I I got recently that I was really excited, and not so much because this is a big artist, but just somebody I really wanted to support. I've like dug his music for a while. Uh, this artist, tall black guy, had an album. I've never actually heard it pronounced, but I want to say it's like Ose Moore or maybe Ozzy, but I'm pretty sure it's Ose Moore of Progress and Progression. I like again. I just wanted to support it. It was really uh, cool. His production style is pretty unique, and plus, I, apparently, although I mean, I've never actually met him. He seems to live somewhere in the state of Maryland. I guess I should specify. It's not like people know where I am. Yo, hook my mic up, please make make the bass come out so clear. Uh, and it don't never get old. Found my element at seven years old. Piece of poems, eighty-eight was gold. A bubble takes from the older homies. So you know, it was just like one of those things. But the other thing that I was listening that I've been listening to kind of a lot is um, you know, I, I followed pokemon from the very beginning and so when pokemon's legend arceus came out and i'm saying before we get flamed in any comments i'm saying arceus because damn it nintendo said arceus when they were uh doing the commercials for the game so that's what i'm rolling with for all those arceus heads out there 
do you i'm just going with what nintendo <laughs> said um but the music is actually really good like not that there was anything wrong with all the music that uh pokemon's used for the other games up to this point this just represented such a big departure i mean maybe because it was set in the past and you know obviously the well maybe not obviously but it wouldn't have necessarily made sense for the music to be exactly the same but i just found myself as i'm like you know going through this whole breath of the pokemon uh type game thinking to myself i'm like wow this is like really cool music and i'm glad that the platform the game has enough memory and whatnot in it to have such like sort of complex arrangements in the music i mean it's a far cry from the 8-bit days uh which you know i mean not making fun of any folks that really love 8-bit music i i just appreciate the newer stuff Anyway, that's the main thing I'm listening to. I mean, uh, again, going through a whole bunch of stuff that I've listened to a bunch before, but those are the main things I'm listening to right now. Could I posit the Breath of the Mawile, which apparently is a Pokemon? (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully that picks up. Um, Yeah, that was a great... That was good timing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So how have you been listening to it? So I probably more often than not play the Switch in handheld mode. So, you know, I just have a pair of headphones in it. And as I'm doing stuff, I I try to actually be pretty present uh, with the sound. And plus, you know, there are other things going on that it makes it good to kind of like shut out as much noise as possible. So um, sometimes when I'm playing, it's really just me in the game. That's pretty cool. I just know that sometimes, uh, well, something I'm noticing a little bit more, and maybe this is just because I'm new to Switch, is that several of the games have been including the full soundtrack. Like, I bought the Mario All-Stars 3-pack, and it has the soundtrack for all three. So, in a similar way, I can just, like, pop it in, and I can play all three of those soundtracks, and I can just listen to them. And I'm like, oh, this is handy. (laughs) I'm not even sure if that's an extra in this game. I just meant in terms of actually playing the game, like, the music that comes up. But, hmm, now you made me curious. I'll have to go back and see if that's, like, in this buried in the settings or options somewhere i don't know and again it's like something nintendo has done with the mario series in the bay i know they used to make cds of like galaxy i remember those soundtracks but yeah this is the first time i remember like i was like whoa the full soundtracks here yeah they're pretty open with bringing out their soundtracks i remember pre-ordering donkey kong country and it came with the entire soundtrack which was fantastic so ideally they continue to do it and hopefully somewhere buried in those those settings like you said jason you've got the full soundtrack available to you because when we were talking like about that it sounded fantastic and it sounds like it's quite the really lovely departure which is great yeah it's pretty cool but even if that isn't true i mean hopefully they do sort of put that music on something but otherwise i'll just have to settle for my uh arceus plushie that should be coming hopefully in the not too distant future anthony what have you been listening to uh i don't know have you guys heard of this movie called encanto no, you go on. Tell us. Yeah, Did you tell like us it? more. <laughs> I have honestly been listening to that soundtrack non-stop. I haven't listened to a soundtrack like this uh, probably since Frozen. I repeat it. It is bonkers how much I'm in love with it and how much I play it. I mean, the best part is, again, my partner Salem is on board, so we're just constantly singing. And then the one part that we've perfected 
is in the We Don't Talk About Bruno. There's like this sequence of buildup before they go to the dinner table round choral singing. And so we just constantly quote that back and forth. Yeah, I really need to know about Bruno. Give me the truth and the whole truth, Bruno. Isabella, your boyfriend's here. Dinner's ready. Anyway. <laughs> you aren't kidding. Oh. So good. <laughs> I cannot stop listening to it. So I, I really wish there was like more for me to update. But I honestly was going through my Spotify and I was like... Uh, yeah, this is awkward. It's literally just the Encanto soundtrack, like, on uh, repeat, so... Got it, got it. It's very good. Wow, I'm super excited I got to sing in this episode, and we get to talk about cult movies. I'm not going to sleep tonight. Uh, I'm not. There's too much. There's too much (laughs) Well, I think with that, then, let's jump into it. Let's go ahead and take a little bit of a break, and we'll jump right into cult classics. It is now time to get into our main topic, which today is going to be a focus on cult classics. So to kind of generally take a look at the definition of what a cult classic is, it's basically looking at a piece of media. Typically in our situation, we're going to talk either movie or TV show. And it was something that had a pretty small but mighty following. We're talking about individuals who would take in-depth dives into each element of a movie sequence or a TV show and really pull it apart and love every single sequence of it. And I think that's kind of perfect for our podcast. I mean, the podcast medium gives us this opportunity to dive deep into a specific piece of media. And because we have three of us here, we get to dive deep into a bunch of different pieces of media. But the reason why I think this is going to be a really exciting topic is because if you've listened to any of our past episodes, a lot of it will be kind of bringing forward what we find really interesting or something that is personal to us. And some of the other hosts uh, within our little trio here maybe haven't seen the items that we're going to talk about. Today feels like it's going to be a bit different. Today feels like it's going to be a lot of similar thoughts and feelings and interactions on the pieces of media that we're bringing today, whether it's recent or longstanding. So this is actually going to be a really fun one, I think. And I think we've got some really great ones to kick off with. So um, if you don't mind, I think I will take the stab at the first one here. And maybe we'll do this a little bit differently rather than just one person giving all of their uh, uh, offerings today. We'll maybe just do kind of one at a time, just go around and just reminisce and, and kick back and talk about each of the different pieces that uh, that we're bringing. But the first one that I'm bringing to the table is probably one of those ones that a lot of individuals, very similar to me, um, can really go back in their mind and think about what is the one thing that is most quoted with my friends group? What was the only thing we basically spoke in, like the language that we spoke in in high school? What was that sort of item that we always just sort of kept on coming back to? What's the movie that we could just watch on repeat over and over and over again? And for me and my friend group, it was Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Look, my leech! Camelot. Camelot! Camelot! It's only a model. Knights, I bid you welcome to your new home. Let us ride to Camelot! When knights are round table, we dance where we're able. We do routines 
So this is now kind of a couple generations of people really clamoring together and grabbing onto Holy Grail and quoting it verbatim to death and loving every minute of it, basically. It is, of course, from the classic individuals of Monty Python, just great British humorists uh, in their own right. But when they came together and finally started to, started to put their items into movies, they produced one of the greatest, in my opinion, cult classic films of all time. And the reason I think that this is a really good base definition of cult classic is because it was such a hard sell to a studio, and it was kind of pretty well received overall. Like it had an, a starting budget of about 400000 which they had to make up by getting people like the Beatles to support their budget. I believe George Harrison was one of the main guys to support this. I believe there were members of Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd who helped fund the creation of this movie. And it made uh, $5 million. But I think the legacy of cult classics is when we were watching it when we were young, like we would just grab the VHS tape and just watch it to death. And we would pause and quote, and we would then quote it later on. And this is the fantastic thing about Monty Python. It is so unbelievably quotable that you just kind of throw it into random conversations and it still kind of sticks in lexicons to this day. So it's it's quite great. And that's why I think Monty Python is, for me, right up there as being one of the best cult classics. Even though I think in the stuff we're bringing today, there are some other real bangers and contenders for that top title. Now stand aside, worthy adversary. Tis but a scratch. A scratch? Your arm's off. No, it isn't. Well, what's that then? I've heard worse. You liar! Come on, you pansy! <laughs> Tis but a scratch! <laughs> uh, yeah, the uh, one of the things I love about Monty Python movies specifically for me was that I got introduced to them a lot through my uncle and cousins. And they definitely like that British style of humor, the Pink Panther, and like just a lot of stuff that I never would have found on my own. So that's actually how I found, uh, I discovered Monty Python and specifically the Holy Grail. And I think I was a little too young when I first saw it, because I must have been maybe six, seven, at the oldest eight. And like stuff made me laugh. But I definitely remember being like, I don't really get some of it. And it wasn't until I was much older that I rewatched it that, like, I was just howling at, like, the bunny scene. Like, just that <laughs> whole concept was so... Shark pointy teeth. Yeah. And, like, I think, <laughs> and again, the ability as a kid, to travel through the air with the greatest of ease. I'm warning you. What's he do? Nibble your bum? He's got huge, sharp... He can leap about... Look at the bones! Go on, boss, chop his head off. Right, silly little beater. One rabbit two coming right up. Look! <laughs> Jesus Christ! I warned you! There's just so many rediscoveries that I found. And then even later, I remember somebody, I think the quote of, uh, I fart in your general direction, mm -hmm. which again is poignant given my Encanto story <laughs> earlier. True. But that was, somebody said that into me in university. And I remember it was like, all of a sudden it was like, click, 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 click. And I was like, I burst out laughing. And I was like, I haven't heard that reference in so long. But it stayed with me. 
Now look here, my good man. I don't want to talk to you no more, you empty-headed animal food trough whopper. I fart in your general direction. Your mother was a hamster, and your father smelt of elderberries. The cult of Monty Python and the Holy Grail is, like, big enough. It's huge. But I think even the cult of Monty Python themselves uh, continues to this day. Because even though Monty Python and the Holy Grail is amazing, my cult Monty Python movie is Meaning of Life. So good. Yeah. And so, like, that was the one I really attached to. And I really, like, sometimes I will even just randomly quote that one. But, yeah, they're just, it's just such a pure comedy in the smartest sense that i really appreciate well i guess kind of like anthony i mean when the first time i saw that film i don't even remember how old i was but i know i was really young and i definitely didn't get it kind of a lot like the way i'm finding like old snl stuff you know it's like it it's been around my entire life but when i look at that stuff it's like oh this is actually kind of funny now whereas before i was like oh that 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 was lame I didn't necessarily feel that about Monty Python at the time, but there was a lot of stuff that went over my head. And, you know, I guess because it was a modern or, you know, sort of like a different take, I guess I found myself gravitating towards like the Princess Bride more just because it was a little more relatable. Mm -hmm. In any event, you know, I was just kind of, uh, I was enamored how like it really was a comedy from start to finish. I mean, even from the freaking credits, you know, yeah. like I was like, wow, they really mentioned Moose a whole lot. <laughs> and, you know, and I don't even remember if or, I, well, I don't know how to, to read. I guess those are like Nordic characters or whatever. Like, so I don't know if that would be pronounced totally different, but I was just like, I was really tickled by how much Moose uh, was responsible for just in the early part. And then because of a screw up uh, and folks getting fired, then they switched to like this, you know how there's that one episode that got banned because like it was sort of funky psychedelic causing epilepsy because of like the flashing lights. I, I kind of had that same moment. I'm not epileptic or anything, so I'm not trying to make light of it. But, like, I could imagine that for many people, that probably caused problems when they cut to, like, the mariachi uh, mm -hmm. uh, music and, like, you know, the bright sort of red, yellow, green that it was going between. But, yeah, it, it's it, lots of quotables, lots of weird songs, lots of just sort of overall funkiness that it's like, yeah, okay, I, 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 can, I can appreciate this a lot better now. That's the beauty of it, too. Like, the soundtrack even kind of goes along with just the weird absurdity of it. Because it's perfect what you talked about, Jason. In that intro credit, you've got that dark sort of, all right, we're in medieval times, and it's it's this sort of really slow, monotonous, but intense music. And then it just cuts immediately after the whole sacking of the credit person to, like, use, like you mentioned, the really sort of wacky, psychedelic stuff that's going on. It's brilliant. And then at the very end, as they're kind of approaching the castle and the, the Holy Grail's right there, they get arrested, thrown in the paddy wagon and then it just suddenly cuts to this weird end music that just keeps on playing on repeat over and over then that's just it it's so good this is the episode i feel like it, we could probably put an image with the episode it's just us three like in that classic sort of 90s sleepover with the three girls on the bed with like their hands on their chins with their legs up because it's just us 100%. dishing. It's so good. 
One hundred percent. I'll gladly fangirl with the, uh, you two anytime. <laughs> oh, so good. All right, who's up next? All right, I think it's time for me to pull out my first of two gay cult classics. Because I love a good cult classic. Obviously, we've all talked about how much we all love good cult movies. But I think specifically, what I found is that there is a little bit of a sub-fan base of gay men who really love and attach themselves to movies. And I'm going to talk about my two personal ones today. But I really have to give a shout-out to my friend Paul Diamond, because... Like a good elder queer, he's like two or three years older than me, he was the one who actually introduced me both to these movies. And he kind of guided me and was my my queer spirit guide through cult films. And one of the first movies he ever introduced me to was Mommy Dearest. <laughs> Tina! Bring me the axe! Mommy Dearest is obviously very well known for its no wire that quote is just, I mean, I remember even before I saw Mommy Dearest, I knew about the wire hangers quote. What's wire hangers doing in this closet when I told you no wire hangers ever? That, I think, is just a far-reaching uh, status symbol of the movie and how much it kind of permeated pop culture. But I had never seen it. And I was probably, it was probably about 10 years ago, I want to say maybe 11 years ago, that Paul asked me, he's like, he made, he made some wire hanger joke. And then he made a joke about, you know, Joan Crawford. And he's like, you've never seen Mommy Dearest? And I was like, no, what's the big deal? And he's like, oh my God, Anthony. And he put it on for me and I had no idea what to expect. Like, I walked in blind. And that movie made me laugh uncontrollably from start to finish. Because there is so much going on in that movie that they have no idea what they're doing with it. It honestly, I watched it and the end was, my end thought was, how did this get made? How did somebody put in the amount of time, effort, and skill to put into a movie and it come out like the first Lifetime movie of the <laughs> week that had ever been made, and that that wasn't even a thing yet. <laughs> oh, it's that's spot on. That is yeah, an like, absolute spot on description. It really has the aesthetic of an old Hollywood movie, but by God, is it trashy as shit. <laughs> like, just... And again, I think one of the biggest things uh, that I really do need to talk about, Mama Dearest, is because there it is a tale of child abuse. I think that's important to kind of preface it with is that this movie actually started as a book. After Joan Crawford died, she uh, essentially cut off her son and her ado- adopted daughter and adopted son, and they got nothing from her. And this was a kind of retaliation, if you will. Some saw it as a retaliation. Others saw it as her uh, sharing her truth. So I also grew up in a household where some of the parenting techniques that Joan Crawford used, my parents also used. I can acknowledge that now that's physical abuse, and they can, like, they obviously acknowledge it too, and they're changed people. Like, it was of the time. I was born in the, in the year that this movie was released. So for me, it wasn't a traumatic experience. But I remember I did show this to some people, and they had to stop and leave because. Some of the scenes were too much, is that they just, it was too much for them. Not me, however. I get that 
child abuse is bad and I'm never condoning it, but the depiction of it is so outrageous and overdramatic, I can't take it seriously. Why can't you give me the respect that I'm entitled to? Why can't you treat me the way I would be treated by any stranger on the street? Because I am not one of your fans! My God, I love to laugh at Mommy Dearest because it is so early Jerry Springer. And it's just played for straight. I think that's the biggest thing that this movie has going for it is it's it always plays it straight. Like, at never at one point are they ever winking or, like, this is all dead serious. This was meant to be, like, the most serious thing ever. And it turned into such a crap show <laughs> that essentially what ended up happening was when the movie premiered, it was negative. Like, the critics just ripped it apart. And the studio literally pivoted the weekend that it opened and it changed its marketing so that it actually sold it as an unintentional comedy. That is actually one of the ways in which Mommy Dearest led to the cult developing. And it was actually a large group of gay men and gay women and queer people who were uh, hosting screenings of it in New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco. And they were the ones that turned it into a Midnight Madness movie. They were the ones that would come out in droves. They would go see it two or three times. And so it kind of became enwrapped in, 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 in a little bit of queer history because Joan Crawford was also a, a popular gay symbol because of whatever happened to Baby Jane. But this took her into another dimension. A new generation of gays was now coming into this wildly dramatic woman. And my God, we all wanted to be her. We did. Barbara, please. Ah! <laughs> oh, Joan. Barbara, please. Please, Barbara. It is so quotable. It is so... It it is exactly like you said. It is played so straight, but is so ridiculous and absurdist and hilarious. Like, as I was telling you two before we started recording, this is my first experience with Mommy Dearest. And I've known some of the quotes. Like, No Wire Hangers, I've known. I've known some of the other... I watched Drag Race when Alyssa Edwards imitated Joan Crawford as... Like, I I get some of the references, but in watching it completely, holy cow, is this a roller coaster. And it is so good. And I like the idea that they've completely... They shifted. They pivoted on that dime, knowing that they needed to shift. And I actually found what their new subtitle was when the uh, production company switched. It's Meet the Biggest Mother of Them All. Which is so good. It's so good to put a new hilarious catch catchphrase or tagline on your movie because you know that it's not being taken the way that it was taken. And it was even nominated for a bunch of Razzies, which... Oh, yeah. Yeah, is ridiculous. But it is so brilliant. It is so... And I think Faye Dunaway, it does an amazing job playing Joan Crawford. Like, that is an intense method. Daniel Day-Lewis, you no longer recognize Faye Dunaway anymore dive into Joan Crawford and she goes to town on that and holy cow is it it's so good and so funny I had a blast watching this for the first time and now I love that I get the references I understand the barber pleases or the no wire hangers ever or just some of the other stuff that's that's said in there and the lat like the final line like when they're cut out of the will it's like for reasons that they know yeah exactly. or that they are like, made even aware from of beyond just, I'm like my god what a passive-aggressive bitch she always gets the last word <laughs> 
Oh, it's so good. I enjoyed this so much. It is my intention to make no provision herein for my son, Christopher, for my daughter, Christina, for reasons which are well known to them. What reasons? <laughs> Jesus Christ. So I haven't watched that recently, so it's not as fresh in my mind. So two things that didn't occur to me until just recently. It never dawned on me that that was a 1981 film. I kind of just assumed that it was a function of all of these, you know, other films of the much older sort of period. And I, I never even really questioned that. I don't remember laughing uh, through it. Like, I mean, I guess I, you know, I can. You didn't you didn't watch it with the right people then. <laughs> I, I guess not. Right. But then again, you know, I was like much older when I realized that, you know, you could listen to the wizard of oz along with uh pink floyd uh, pink and then floyd, like yeah. you know be under the influence of something and have like a totally tripped out experience so you know take that with a grain of salt but it was a little you know kind of traumatic because i mean i guess kind of like you anthony i can i can relate to a parent not having the best parenting skills and perhaps resorting to the physical a little more often you know, just listening to you guys talk about it, though, I'm like, gosh, if if that character was alive today, she'd freak out at, like, all dry cleaning. Because, oh, I mean, yeah. that's that's really all you ever get, ever, <laughs> ever in life. And, like, you know, I, I, that would be a totally different film, but I, I'd be I'd be there for it. Because I'm like, <laughs> you know, I, just to see that meltdown in, like, any dry cleaner of choice. So what you're saying is we should make Mommy Dearest 2? Because I I like where this is going. I, I, I will volunteer to play John Crawford, okay? I will. It seems like a natural fit. Tina! <laughs> bring me the axe! Um, so good. So I I guess I will need to rewatch that again and see like what my uh, reaction is. I, I would imagine, yeah, it just a, a totally different vibe, but it's it's interesting to know that it became sort of like a, a cult i knew it was a cult classic but because of people found it funny that part i don't think i knew so learn something new every day it's it's a magical gift and the funny part is it's got such a cult that even now like i found a final copy of the mommy dearest soundtrack by uh, Henry Madfrini, sorry Mancini. He he composed the music for this movie. He's a very well respected composer. He was like old Hollywood royalty. And I found a vinyl copy of it. And let me tell you, I put that on when I'm going around cleaning the house. I'm not <laughs> mad at you. I'm mad at the dirt. And it just brings me so much joy. It's like. And again, one of the other things is I love watching this movie with a big group of people. Because especially if uh, a bunch of us have seen it, and there's a couple people who are virgins, and they're coming into this, and they have no idea 
like just the talk back and the setup you can get from jokes about what you know is going to come on screen and you know the lines and dialogue so you can interact with the movie and it just it makes it a whole experience that again as my friend Paul did to me he showed me this movie and he was like listen you need to enjoy this and we did and then we would watch it a couple other times and I would have other people and even now to this day when I'm like oh you haven't seen Mama Dearest okay yeah Let's next Saturday. What are you doing? Come on over. And I think that's one of the best things about cult classics. One of the things Jason and I were talking about a few days ago was how Mystery Science Theater 3000 really introduced me to the idea of cult classics because they were taking these movies and shedding light on them in a completely different way. And they're movies that aren't popular, that aren't big. They're just really bad, cheesy movies, but there's such a love and appreciation for them. That so many people, and I think I've mentioned this in the past, that when I used to watch movies way back when I was younger, I'd get my nose way up in the air saying, well, I'm only watching the best of the best. The best of the best are the worst. Like, this is, mm-hmm. we need to see more Mommy Dearest up there, and more Plan 9 from Outer Space, and more Manos Hands of Fate, because this is the communal experience with cult class. Like, I love the, I used to love watching Monty Python with a group. Mommy Dearest would be a blast with the group. Watching other bad movies with a group is fun, and you just get to have your own sort of personal experience, just as you did with Salem and Encanto. Like you have those experiences <laughs> that that make it memorable, make it enjoyable, or make it really awkward. Like who knows what the situation is? But but I think that's the beauty of the cult classic system is that you get to just sit down and and have communal experiences. And if we ever get back to that situation. I want to put on Mommy Dearest. I want to get people involved and yes, please. Yeah. Just have a blast with it. But yeah, yeah, the soundtrack shouldn't go unnoticed because we've got Henry Mancini, the creator of the Pink Pink Panther Panther theme. Yeah. He's doing some incredible stuff and he gets this. It is so lifetime movie. Like I think Anthony, you nailed it. Like it does feel like that made for TV movie with the sort of operatic music when in the middle or at the very end of the movie, you have a literal soap opera taking place. So yeah, there's really great stuff to be had with Mommy Dearest. Indeed. this is the right segue i mean you know awkward silence uh or strange pause can can trigger this but i in a way i kind of feel like you almost set up a little bit like the the movie i was going to talk about Rewatching the professional again which is the film i'm about to talk about now depending on what you actually consider like how you define cult classic i don't know if the, i mean i to me this feels like a definite cult classic but i'm not sure if it oh, fits yeah for some of the reasons we've already outlined. Like, to me, the reason I think it's a cult classic is because it always felt like a really well-kept secret. Like, it was, like, one of those things where, like, only the cool kids actually know about this film. And, you know, looking, like, doing a little bit of uh, digging just what the internet say about it, like, it apparently kind of panned more than I would have expected by, you know, critics and whatnot. But I'm going to go out here and, you know put out a theory that i hopefully the first one to put out there but you know if i'm not i can live with it i haven't heard any uh references like this anywhere else 
actually think it was Cowboy Bebop before Cowboy Bebop. If you strip away everything futuristic about Cowboy Bebop, there's so much in common with that series. You know, you've got this hitman that, I mean, now Spike wasn't technically a hitman, but there's just so many scenes that seem like were just plucked right out of the professional uh, for the purposes of the anime. So I guess maybe I'm sort of backhandedly saying the professional at times was cartoonish, but I also think that the violence was so over the top that it could only be fully captured purely in animated form. There's rules. Okay. And stop saying okay all the time, okay? You know, all that to say that the score is, you know, the score is cool. There are a couple of standout songs within the score itself. But I kept finding myself sort of thinking like, okay, it's sort of chamber music, but it's also sort of Gypsy Kings rolled into one. But it also reminds me an awful lot of a lot of the music. Like, I mean, I, you know, I sent you guys a message. It unfortunately kind of like disappeared afterwards. But one of the, and actually, okay, I'm, I'm. I have so many thoughts about this. I'm like going off on all these tangents. That song by Bjork and the ending track weren't actually on the soundtrack. And this is like one of those times it's like, damn you soundtrack. Why? Why? But like the Bjork song definitely felt Cowboy Bebop. Like you could have just thrown that into almost any episode they had in that run. It would have fit perfectly and it would have made tons of sense. And then, you know, ending the, the film on The Shape of My Heart by Sting, it just, it all fit. And I'm like, why? I mean, look, I get it. All the other songs are sort of purely score, and that's cool. But just give us a couple of bones here, man. Like, those songs are too good to just sort of not, uh, what, anyway. Know that the spades are the swords of a soldier. I know that the clubs are weapons of war. Now, what I also found interesting was like Eric Sarah, or actually, I wrote this down because this is intriguing to me too. Apparently, he pronounces it like Eric Sarah. Um, And that's like sort of, you know, (laughs) another member of the Wu Tang clan. Um, (laughs) Like, you know, uh, he's got like quite the catalog of films under his belt, including this one. I mean, like The Fifth Element freaking GoldenEye apparently he was brought in for that but then it was kind of like a one and done because they didn't like where he took the music in that film which you know I don't remember the scoring in GoldenEye that well but I didn't find it especially jarring so I'm like really that's it was too out of anyways not to say that there's a problem with the other folks who did uh Bond music but man I don't that's definitely not a problem they had I mean I could would have been fine with it but yeah like I just that film is so good, but then there's this one asterisk, though, because it makes me feel... Like, on the one hand, most of it is fantastic, but then it makes me feel so damn awkward for two reasons, I guess. One much more serious than the the other. That sort of sexual tension between freaking him and Natalie Portman is weird. It just... It's freaking weird. Leon, I think I'm kind of falling in love with you. It's the first time for me, you know? 
How do you know it's love if you've never been in love before? Because I feel it. Where? In my stomach. So that's probably the one weird part, because, I mean, you know, obviously it never went anywhere too inappropriate, but she's kind of like that, going back to this whole uh, Cowboy Bebop reference, she is kind of Ed-like in a way, but Spike wasn't particularly interested in Ed the way Leon sort of had this weird, uh, <laughs> for, uh, you know, uh, Matilda. So there's kind of that. Yeah, that chestnut interestingly <laughs> enough when i first watched it when it came out i was so naive that i genuinely didn't attach sexual uh attention from leon to matilda and it wasn't until later they watched it and i was like "Ooh, i missed that when i was younger i did not see that because i saw it as very like a loving relationship but i didn't realize how it was like crossing boundaries of relation loving and i was like oh this is ooh. yeah just yeah. a touch uncomfortable. <laughs> Indeed. But, I mean, like, I don't condone that, and it's not to say that it's good, or that was like, oh yeah, that was, the movie was beca good because of that. If anything, I think it added a little bit of a lecherous nature to Leon, and his, like, upon, like, coming back to it, I'm like, oh yeah, like, you're a little bit bad, and obviously I care about you, but, ooh, what are you doing? <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, there, there's that. I mean, it, uh, to be fair, they created the tension, but it didn't go beyond that, per se. But it just felt damn weird. But then again, that's also on <laughs> the directors and, like, the, the editing and all that stuff. Because they really did sexualize the hell out of a really, really young Natalie Portman. Very true. Yeah, I'd actually, I'm, I'm really interested to know her thoughts and, like, come back to that. I don't know if she, I don't know if she's ever talked about it. I know that there was a sequel written that was supposed to take place when she was older. So, like, I'd be really interested to follow up with her on that and see, like, what are her thoughts on that, uh, especially as a child actor and, like, coming back and looking at it. And I don't know, it'd be really interesting to to see what her thoughts are on that. In the same way that I know recently um, Molly Ringwald has written an article about her out, her films from the 80s. And so, again, this retrospective where it's like, okay, yeah, we have nostalgia for this movie, but, yeah, can we still watch this with, even though it's, like, problematic and it might have some stuff in it that's weird? But I say yes. Like, I enjoy the movie. I think it's a fantastic film. I think it's really interesting. I think there's, like... Lots of character study and a lot of, like, really interesting dialogue. Personally, I'm a sucker for, like, good cloak and dagger sort of cat and mouse type shit, so... Oh, for sure. And and as am I. It, it's interesting, though, looking at these movies that are classics from our childhood or, or our youth or just things that we really enjoyed with the lens that we apply to today. I mean, this is the same debate that we've had in discussing creators versus the products that they create can we separate the two are they constantly married together can we take a look at one without understanding like can we look at buffy the vampire slayer and enjoy oh, it for what it is good. without looking at the trash bag that josh Whedon, ah, Joss Whedon good example is. yeah like, this is the problem and so many like buffy's beloved can you look at that and go well there were like stipulations in place where michelle trackenberg could not be in the same room as whedon like they just knew and understood but he created something. He gave birth to this thing that so many people love. And it's still like a, a go-to for individuals who are in really hard 
places in life and really need that support of a familiar show. Like, this is the same sort of situation. Can we look back at a movie that has this sort of element that we can perceive now in our older, more advanced years, or that with a more kind of understanding of the medium, can we apply today's lens to that and still appreciate it i say yes i mean we go back and we've we've talked about leon we've talked about mommy dearest here like there are definitely going to be problematic things if we apply 2022's lens to them but it's just the circumstances of what was created then i mean it's not lolita it's not that clear like this man wants to have sex with this young young girl and she wants the same like there's a bit of ambiguity to the leon and uh, matilda relationship but not not much. I mean, right. it's definitely there. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just a question of how much do we want to apply to it, or can we divorce that from the rest of the movie, which is amazing. And I love the connections to Cowboy Bebop, which is another thing we talked on this podcast about, and I think they mirror really well. So we're always going to have this debate. It's always going to be back and forth on this idea of there's lots of complex, complicated topics, but I think the three of us are well-equipped to navigate it and still have a really interesting debate about it. Yeah, and you know, and I'll just I'll end it on uh, well, and Anthony, you still have to share, but I'll just end my my uh, parallels and just say that that final scene, Gary Oldham and Leon, if that wasn't Spike and Vicious, I don't know what is. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it had all of that, and I was just like, man. Stansfield, at your service. This is from Matilda. And I've never seen like any of the writers or whatever for Cowboy Bebop openly say this, but I, I'm like, I just 100% believe they had to have watched that kind of recently before they sort of developed uh, their story. Because, I mean, they're only removed by like a few years, like four years or something like that. So all I have to say is his next movie after this was The Fifth Element, which is amazing, but also visually, I would say, follows along with the Cowboy Bebop theme. <laughs> like, visually, that movie is very Cowboy Bebop. Right. Very cool. This is so much fun. This is such a good episode. I'm enjoying this. And I think because of the enjoyment, I will bring in my next bit here, which uh, is a bit more of a modern cult classic for me. So my previous one dates back to the 70s. Now we're jumping to 2004, and it is the unbelievable treat that is Napoleon Dynamite. (laughs) We're getting a little low on steak, so I got Lyle coming over tomorrow to take care of it. Well, what's there to eat? Knock it off, Napoleon. Make yourself a dang quesadilla. Fine. It gets me from minute one, where Napoleon is sitting in the back of that bus, and he takes that wrestling figurine and unwraps it, and secretly kind of looks around, and then chucks it out the back window, and it drags on the ground on the road behind it. In random Utah, I believe. It feels very Mormon country to me. I do not know why it works. It shouldn't. It makes absolutely no sense. 
him tasting weird milks at the 4-H club. (laughs) The dance sequence alone could make its own movie. Like, it is so brilliant and again similar to what we were we've been talking about with all these movies and similar to especially with with what i was talking about personally for me with monty python it is so unbelievably quotable well maybe you'd be interested in some home woven handicrafts and here we have some boondoggle keychains a must-have for this season's fashion already made like affinity of those at scout camp like, I still know, for some odd reason, that the llama's name is Tina. Yeah. I cannot remember fractions, but I can remember <laughs> that. I can recall exactly how he drew that girl that he was interested in. I, I, I get a whole bunch of different things still lodged in my head for some odd reason. And it's all in this one glorious piece of film. It is so good. And it's so well acted by everybody. John Heater's brilliant. The guy who plays Uncle Rico is so good. It's it's just it's brilliant from from start to finish. Tina, you fat lord, come eat dinner. <laughs> what is he? What is he chucking at her? What is that? Food it's casserole. Stuff? It's it casserole. Is. Tina, eat. Eat the food. Eat the food. <laughs> but yes, I agree. Like that scene when he throws it out the window and like I remember watching it and just laughing. And my friend who was watching it with me did not understand. She's like, "Why are you laughing?" I'm like, "This is so ridiculous. He's just very quietly throwing an action figure out the window and he's acting like nobody's seeing him pull it behind. Like this is hilarious." I also quoted that movie so much. Like I still to this day know like will um god Oh yeah, that's the, that has been built into the lexicon since 2004. Like the pronunciation, the exact pronunciation of that. And for me, the line that I constantly quote that's random is, "Why don't you build her a cake?" Like it's build her a cake. I love it. I absolutely love just the ridiculousness of that. It's so good. And to kind of bring it back to what we classically talk about here is the soundtrack. The soundtrack's got really fun instrumental stuff, but the licensed music that's in there is so good. Like it's got, like I mentioned, the Jamaicway uh, Canned Heat. It's got Bow Wow Wow's uh, I Want Candy, which is so good. Mm-hmm. There's Forever Young thrown in there by Alphaville. There's, it's just, it feels so, it, it's so 90s. In like the early 2000s, and I know there was that big wave, and it still exists now, of like doing the 90s as kind of like nostalgia film. Yeah, yeah. But they, they just, they did it, but they didn't like do it because it's like winky, nudgy, oh, look at us, we're in the 90s. It's like, no, we're stuck in the 90s. This place has not grown old. It is still here, purely in 1994. Can you imagine when this race is won? I can't make tater tots without, like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, just give me your tots. Like, just, (laughs) oh, yeah, there's so many awesome quotes from that film. Um, And actually, not even, and well, the quote, all the quotables are great, but even just some of the concepts, like just that whole glamour shots thing, or like, you know, the happy hands, like just that, everything about, like I that reference I still make references to some of that stuff, um, even if they're not direct quotes, and it it's just that's definitely a good pick me up film. Pauline, give me some of your tots. 
No, go find your own. Come on, give me some of your tots. No, I'm freaking starved. I didn't get to eat anything today. Gross! You made me uh, remember the fact that like stuff like Jamiroquai made it into uh, that, which, you know, dang. Heard some of his other stuff more recently. It's like, yeah, he probably should have got a little bit more attention. He had that like one album and then kind of like mostly disappeared. But yeah, some of the other songs he mentioned, just sort of classic uh, licensed music and it just just fun stuff. I mean, you know, poor Kip and freaking LaFonda. Like that just, oh. I mean, if... <laughs> You know, talk about getting, I mean, catfished or whatever. It's like, that was catfish <laughs> before catfish, man. Oh, but it was... Uh, she's my girlfriend from the internet. But they loved it. This is the thing. There's there's no sort of, like... It, it kind yeah, of played on the fact girl. of... <laughs> they kind of played on the fact that, yeah, these are, like, not the brightest people. Like, with the time machine. Putting the thing between his legs and then plugging it into the wall and pow, it's like, turn it off. Turn, like, that's, <laughs> it's unbelievable. But even the, the Kip and LaFonda thing, like, she was completely satisfied when she got off that bus and he had that misspelt sign with her name on it. And then he just, she completely changes him. It's so good. Oh, it, oh, I need to watch it. I need to watch yes. it. Yes. The other amazing thing is it was a return of an actress that I loved in the early 90s, Tina Majorino. So, she was a popular child actor in the 90s. Uh, I think she was in, like... I know her from the movies that I saw her in, but I don't think anybody else knows them. One of them is this movie called Karina Karina, with Whippy Goldberg and Ray Liotta and Tina Majorino. And so, I was like, that was the last time I saw her. And then all of a sudden, she's like a grown-up woman, and she's got a side ponytail, and it looks really hot. Yep. I think the the big one there is Waterworld. She was the, oh, the little yes, kid in Waterworld. Yes, yes, yes. Like she and she was in Flipper the movie or a Seal movie or something like that. Oh, was she? Huh. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, I'm digging deep into. Oh no no! Like, it, she was in Andre. It was a. Uh, uh, it's a Seal movie. It's a sea lion, I believe. Or no, it's a, it is a seal. You are correct. <laughs> no, it's so good. But I mean, you can't think about Napoleon Dynamite. You can immediately think about the dance scene, Uncle Rico throwing the stake and hitting Napoleon on the bike. Like, it's just, it's so good. And it, it fits into absurdist comedy that was really popular in the early 2000s and then still is so good here. Like now, it it's just, I, I'm running over myself talking about it. I just get so excited and reminiscing about uh, Napoleon Dynamite. So, And I think it was such a big, like, independent movie. Like, that was the thing. It wasn't, like, a big budget comedy. It wasn't, you know, this, like... It really was just a small little independent movie that they made. And you're right, it is. He's a Mormon. Um, and, like, a lot of the humor in the movie, I think, is... I don't I don't want to say Mormon acceptable, but it's absurdist. And there's no offensive humor in it. There's nothing, like, that's off-putting. They dropped the R word one time, I think, which, I mean, that's, like, of the time, right? I think even now people are still not aware of that word with regard to people with disabilities but i mean outside of that this movie is like probably the most wholesome comedy i've ever remember i can think of in a really long time so i don't know i it's a fascinating movie that i'm so happy it's like a cult of happiness because everyone who watches that movie or seen that movie or knows it it's always just pure joy and they're just like yeah they really enjoy it for what it is Second hand unwind If you're lost, you can look And you will find me Time after time If you fall, I will catch you I'll be waiting uh, 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 uh. 
I'm back and I have so much to talk about showgirls. <laughs> O-M-G. So one of the things I love about cult movies is that they can span across success to non-successful. And so you talk about cult and you talk about, you can talk about the cult of Star Wars. You can talk about the cult of Harry Potter. You can talk about the cult of Rocky Horror. Because those are all very well-known movies that not only made a huge amount of money, but their fans are just diehard fans. And again, as I talked about my first one, Mommy Dearest was a commercial success. It was a little independent movie, but it really like it made back its money and more. I love movies that bomb hard. <laughs> it did though. And I'm I'm not saying I like all movies that bomb hard, but I will more likely rewatch a movie that has bombed and is shitty. And I'll keep coming back to it because I'm like, my God, this is glorious trash. So stuff like I'm talking about The Room, that movie is like cult gold because there's so much bad going on in that movie. Things like Pet Birdemic, Thanks Killing, Killer Condom, like all these like really like just low, low budget, super under, you know, just like really bad movies. But every once in a while, Hollywood gifts us with a production that has lots of money, it has lots of hype, it's got lots of people involved, it's got big names, and that is exactly what happened to Showgirls, is it had the star power, it had the director, it had this hot, hot screenwriter, it had so much hype, because it was going to be the first NC-17 movie that was greenlit by a studio. And that was because in previous years... Basic Instinct had like been a huge cash cow. And that movie just kind of blew up overnight, and all of a sudden the sexual thriller was all the rage. Made me feel like a hooker. You are a whore, darling. No, I'm not. We all are. We take the cash, we cash the check, we show them what they want to see. Maybe you are a whore, Crystal, but I'm not. You and me. We're exactly alike. And so you'll see there's a trend in the 90s of a lot of sexual or erotic thrillers. You know, Madonna did Body of Evidence. There was David Caruso did his stupid NYPD I'm Leaving movie. He There was all these, like, big sexual energy movies. And so after Basic Instinct, everyone was like, well, what is this guy going to write next? And he got together with Paul Verhoeven, the classic director of Total Recall, and at that point, uh, Robocop. (laughs) And he had directed Basic Instinct. So he comes on board, and they're writing about the showgirls of Las Vegas. And the hype that this movie had was, was, it was impossible for this movie to succeed. And it crashed hard. Like, that movie was DOA, dead on arrival. Nobody wanted to see that fucking movie. And... It was considered a huge box office bomb. But what actually happened was that the video rental market was a pervert's best friend. (laughs) And Showgirls earned over $100 million in video rentals. Wow. So a movie that had, like, absolutely no theater presence all of a sudden made $100 million in the video market. And thus began the cult of showgirls. You had 
a huge amount of people. And that's how I first saw this movie when I was a teenager. I remember watching it and being like, I don't know why, but I think I'm going to like this movie. (laughs) And not for the boobs. (laughs) And true to form, I was shown this movie by my friend Paul Diamond years, years later. Again, about 2010, 2011. And even more so than Mommy Dearest, I fell in love with Showgirls. This movie has something going for it that I think very few cult movies have, which there is a genuineness to this story that I think gets swept under the rug because it's so sensationalized, because there's so much nudity and bisexuality. But the story of what actually happens in Showgirls is a very typical story. And that is a a woman goes there with ambitions. She has to... Uh, give up her morals or she has to forego her morals to try and get that goal and then when she does she's punished for being a a bad person Bully and Costello your father killed your mother then killed himself you ran away from a foster home in Oakland December 1990 arrests Denver soliciting San Jose soliciting Cheyenne soliciting shall I read you the rest of them possession of crack cocaine assault with a deadly weapon Tell me something. Why did you stop hooking? You had your future pretty well mapped out for yourself. I did what I had to do. Just like you did with Crystal. And along the way, there's character beats and there's story beats that are actually very true. And they're very hard to watch, particularly the rape scene at the end. Oh, God, yeah. But... Building up to that rape scene, I I still don't know if whether Elizabeth Berkley was trying to be awful on purpose or she just is a bad actress. Because I've seen her in other things and I'm like, you're not that bad. But my God, similar to Faye Dunaway, she gave her all for this role. And it's something. It's it's definitely something. It's, whoa. But she's also (laughs) a terrible character. Nomi Malone is just an awful character throughout the entire movie, and for some reason, lazy script writing, all of the people around her just keep on encouraging her. Like, in the opening scene, she like almost gets hit by a car and barfs on this woman, or beside this woman, and then she's like, why don't, you, why don't I buy you a burger and you come live with me? And you're like, that would never happen in real life. Why would she do that? Like, this crazed woman in the middle of nowhere, and she's like, she seems like good people. Hey! Know me. I work here, okay? I need my paycheck. I do not want her to be pissed at me. I'm sorry! Jesus, Nomi. But that's just one of the magic things about Showgirls is that there are plot points that are kind of ridiculous and everybody just pushes this awful main character along. But there are so many good audience call-out moments in this movie. And there are things that happen again and again. Like, Nomi Malone says different places several times. She There's several scenes of her eating hamburgers. There's scenes of her being erotic and dancing, specifically for the audience. Like, she is not doing it because her character is like, yeah, I should do this. It's clearly because they like the, the audience needs to watch her. So... I, I'm going to stop here because I could honestly talk for another hour and a half about this movie. And I'd love to hear what you guys thought of it. <laughs> Jason. Ah! 
Nobody jump all at once. Oh, I've got a lot. I've got a lot to say. So I'm offering Jason, please go ahead of me because I, I, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I mean, something you said kind of early on about like the whole rental process, that, that kind of touched off a, a, a nerve because, you know, for, I don't, I don't know, those younger than maybe half uh, the host ages, uh, if you're listening to this right now, you may not even remember a time where like video stores were like a common thing. And you definitely wouldn't remember the fact that some video stores have like you know kind of cd or had cd parts to them where you could sort of pick up some of these like blue movies and you know and depending on your mood at the time like you know you might try to sneak by and grab one without like people really noticing you were over there type thing and yeah this film was kind of all of that i don't you mentioned that like uh elizabeth berkeley like you saw her do some decent things i think i only knew her from uh saved by the bell so that wasn't like exactly the pinnacle of fantastic acting right like it was just something that was i appreciated then but in retrospect like it just was really really uh yeah i mean well it it ran for a long time anyway but then again so did mighty Morphin power rangers so that you know Ah! That's the best analogy one could hope for when you're discussing showgirls. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, it, it was a stinker. And I think up until this conversation, it's like one of those things, you know, you just try to kind of forget, I suppose. You know, I mean, I guess the, this is going to sound awful. I suppose in retrospect, maybe the nudity is the best part. I don't know. Like, I it just. Uh, it is. As a gay man, <laughs> boobs are amazing. I, like I, boobs are great. Boobs are, boobs are great, and this movie has Titties. tons of them. I mean, there's that whole scene where they're doing the audition, and then he uh, gets to the final, like the last stage, and there's like four girls on stage, and then he's like, "Okay, girls, remove your tops," and they're all like, "What?" And he's like, "Well, I'm running a uh, a uh, a show. I'm not running a car dealership here. I need to see what your tits look like," and I'm like, "Girl, same." okay ladies i'm tony moss i produce this show some of you probably heard that i'm a prick i am a prick i got one interest here and that's the show i don't care whether you live or die i want to see you dance and i want to see you smile you know i mean yay gratuitousness yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the campiest parts of this movie is that it's just so outrageous with its nudity and it's so over the top with it, just like everything else, that, again, I almost don't take it seriously because I'm just like, oh, you've used it so much and so gratuitously that it's almost like it's a given now. It doesn't shock me. It's just part of this. Um, Dom, before you uh, share your thoughts, I think one of the things I want to talk about is the soundtrack because... Believe it or not, there was a lot of really impressive people involved in this. Specifically, Dave Stewart, who you might know from as the uh, other half of the Eurythmics. He did the, he produced the soundtrack. Prince uh, submitted two songs, and there is rumor to suggest that he actually wrote the movie or the song three one three nineteen based on Elizabeth per- Berkeley's dance moves. There is speculation he actually wrote that specifically for the movie based on seeing her dance. 
uh, when Nomi Malone is dancing at the club, uh, specifically the one where uh, Gina Gershon and Kyle McLaughlin come in and watch her. Such a good scene. The door number that she operates in is 319. I mean, when it comes to freaky shit, like Prince is sort of the the oh. king of having music woven into it. I mean, after all, I mean, he, he did a totally. lot of the music for Girl 6, too. I mean, like, the fact that he likes right? kink, I mean, like, his middle name is was freaking kink. So, you know, I mean. And this is, like, before, the, I think this is what may have led him to his religious conversion. Because this is the time period when Prince got really skanky. And then there was a period where he turned religious, and it was soon after this. So, I'm not saying that Showgirls is to blame for Prince, but I'm going to say it had a hand in it. But Jason, or Don, tell me your feelings about boobs. All right. Well. I mean, Showgirls, the movie. That's our sister podcast, Even the Breasts. (laughs) Jeez. (laughs) Jason, you nailed it with your description of the video store. We had this one video store in our hometown and it had exactly what you would picture a a small mom and like a small run video store to have. It was just rows and rows of those boxes with the styrofoam inserts and you would every once in a while catch a glimpse of that showgirls box. It is iconic. That image of Elizabeth Elizabeth Berthy kind of like with the one leg out and the black around like it is it is definitely the oh Oh my god. Anthony has a poster <laughs> that he is di- that it is showing us here on video. It's iconic, and it is so burned into my brain as a young heterosexual male. I wanted to see that movie so so bad because I knew exactly what I was going to get into with that movie. And of course, for me, it was linking it also to Saved by the Bell because there is mm. Jesse Spano, mm-hmm. who is like just one of the three women on the TV show that I watched the most. I definitely let more Kelly Kapowski, but there's Jesse Spano right there. Like it's it's amazing. I did not see this movie until two days ago. <laughs> I did not see it. And it was a delight to watch <laughs> this movie now. <laughs> Understanding oh what we had said God. in previous conversations is that this has a lot of problematic Me Too yeah. energy going on here. Like, your nipples aren't erect. Why don't you pinch them? Why don't you, <laughs> you want some use ice? the size? Yeah, get them, get them going. I'm erect. Why aren't you? It's like, all right, let's 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 back up there, Creeper. But everything else with this movie was perfect. It was so good in its camp, in its cheese, in its... They're taking their se- themselves so damn seriously. They're making art. And I get that Verhoeven's coming off of a trifecta of movies that's unbelievable. Basic Instinct, Total Recall, Robocop. Those are three, like Robocop and and, uh, Total Recall for sure are coming off of like this amazing sci-fi dawn in his early teens. Yes, this is hitting my sci-fi itch. Then he starts to drift into Basic Instinct, getting into more of the erotica, which is definitely the era. And then he hits with this. And I get what they're trying to do, and they are really taking it seriously. And 
I understand the idea that it's so absurdist and it's so weird and, and we're glorifying this character who's really awful, but everyone else around this character is a horrible bag themselves that it just fits and everybody's a terrible person together. And now sitting like in 2022, like looking at social media and the news and knowing that there are just like groups of horrible people getting together and doing awful things like this just makes sense. The dancing world is cutthroat. I mean, Gina Gershon is in the hospital with a like a compound fractured hip and here comes Elizabeth Berkeley, and she's like, ah, don't worry about it, kid. How do you think yeah. I got my first gig? I'm sorry, Crystal. Yeah, I know just how sorry you are. How do you think I got my first lead? There's always someone younger and hungrier coming down the stairs after you. Oh, it's it's so good. It was so ridiculous. The nudity, like, in comparison to now, I mean, it's nothing. But it's everywhere. It is just, there is no tops. There was no wardrobe budget for this movie. Because it's just nipples and butts everywhere. <laughs> what I'm trying to wrap my head around with this movie is trying to understand if the dancing is actually any good. Let's break it down. Please. There is a character in this movie named Gay Carpenter. Which, aside from setting up so many good audience call-outs, because every time somebody's like, gay, you're just like, gay! <laughs> uh, gay Carpenter is actually played by the real choreographer. Okay. So, choreographer is actually a well-trained Vegas dancer. And so, yes, all of the dancing that you see in each of the uh, Stardust things, that's all full rehearsed El Las Vegas-based dancing. They'll run you through it once, you just watch, and then we'll blend you in. Have you eaten anything? No. Jack. Yeah. Who do you want? Um, burger, fries, and soda. Get us some brown rice, vegetables, and a bottle of Evian. You got so it. You guys sign it up. No, no, I mean, no, no, no. Come take a look at this first. Here we go. Five, six, seven, eight. Even more, Elizabeth Berkeley's strip dancing is very realistic to what you would see at a, uh, at what you would, what used to be cheetahs. <laughs> So yes, the dancing is pure. It's like really well done. It was like the choreography was a huge part of this movie. And it was, they rehearsed, like it was all part of it. It seems unbelievably intensive. Yeah. Like Elizabeth Berkeley for the actress that she is. I mean, I mean, it's not great. Don't get me wrong. She is dancing her literal clothes off. Like it seems ah. like everybody's dancing their asses off in this movie and doing a pretty damn good job. I just have no perception of if, if dance is good or bad, but it seems like it was quite well done, but Holy cow. Did I enjoy this? Ah. Like, this was so much fun having watched mommy dearest and showgirls back to back. Like it, you couldn't get further apart, but it's so enjoyable in the sense of this is what cult classics lead us to weird rabbit holes with unbelievable movies that you wouldn't typically see otherwise. I guess just to cap off the showgirls discussion, it actually has a really happy ending with regards to Elizabeth Berkley, because I don't know if you all both know, but after this movie, her career crashed. Like it was, uh, it was pure misogyny. Yeah. It's pure misogyny. Like 
it was 100%. She threw herself into a role that allowed to, her to use her young body, and it was manipulated, and she agreed to do everything along the way, but the perception was taken out of her control. And so she lost a, a decade uh, of uh, basically a viable career in Hollywood, and it wasn't until you know the early 2000s that she started to get back into TV and doing stuff like that. Now she's actually, uh, you know, part of the really big successful relaunch of Saved by the Bell. But in addition to that, about 10 years ago, she started something called Ask Elizabeth. And it is a series of workshops for young girls and teens who have questions about not only their body, but also what society expects of girls. And so she actually used her experience with showgirls as a way to say, I made the choice to use my body and show my body, and the reaction to it was negative. But that doesn't mean that my body is wrong. That doesn't mean that my nudity is wrong. That doesn't mean that I as a person am wrong. And so she actually created this entire teen movement that focuses on body positivity and acknowledging of femaleness and female sexuality. So I uh, really discovered this movie when she came into that, is that she was posting references to Versace. You know, I started following on her Instagram and she starts, you know, posting Nomi um, poses and Nomi quotes. And that was very new for her. And I, I realized that she had actually hated this movie for so long. But through this project, she actually learned how to forgive herself and kind of come into her own. And now Elizabeth Berkeley, I follow her on Instagram and I love it. I, I like she will she's even made references to Nomi in the new Saved by the Bell remake. She she did. She yeah, said that so like, those those few months that she spent in Vegas after college. Huh. Come on, huh. like huh. I think that's so smart. And you know, the difference is Faye Dunaway doesn't want to talk about Mommy Dearest because she is so serious and she thinks that she ruined her life by doing that movie. Elizabeth Berkeley is the complete opposite of that. She understands what happened and she lives in the real world, but she takes it with stride and she takes it with laughter. So that to me is, again, for a movie that does have some really politically incorrect material, uh, I love coming back to it because it really does remind me that I'm like, there's so much positivity in this. And... It is a bisexual love story where nobody dies. Show me an actress who is given the opportunity from early 90s Paul Verhoeven who doesn't snatch up the chance to star in this movie. She is immediately coming off of Saved by the Bell. And she is going to be, like, if that movie, like, breaks differently in any way, she is going to be the huge hit. None of the other Saved by the Bell kids did really much else movie-wise outside of of that show she is going to be the breakout star who knows if it's released now it could be 200 300 million like who knows what that movie does in these times and she's empowered to do so and she's supported and actually positively influenced to be her own woman and do what she wants with her sexuality the only reason that movie really got made was because of its shock value. It's not shocking anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. you could see way worse things on pretty much oh any social media platform any time of day. So it's like I don't, it wouldn't even hit the same. Like you said, it, there's and maybe NC-17 then, but it wouldn't certainly I don't think it would get that now. So Especially ma- even with like streaming platforms like Netflix. Like, there's so much more, uh, less restriction with regards to MPAA. This becomes a 10-episode miniseries, (laughs) and it it becomes, like, it is Showgirls the show. I really would love that. Okay, if we just, if we just convert over to Showgirls the podcast... 
Yeah, I, I really, I think we have to stop talking about it because I, I want to remain friends with you people. And if you know how <laughs> deep my rabbit hole goes for showgirls, I don't think you're going to want to. Yeah, so let's just leave it at that. <laughs> so I love us an off-color <laughs> sexual reference that was like, <laughs> it popped in my head in that moment. But I'm just going to leave that there. No, yes. no exploring Anthony's holes today. <laughs> Every hole is a goal. <laughs> oh, we're off the rails, ladies and gentlemen. This is so good. Well, Showgirls broke us. <laughs> on that note, segue into office space. <laughs> yes! <laughs> the work hole that we can all relate to, I think, oh so well. Actually, anybody who's ever had an office job. Hello, Peter. What's happening? Uh, we have sort of a problem here. Yeah, you apparently didn't put one of the new cover sheets on your TPS reports. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry about that. I I forgot. Mm, yeah. Oh, goodness. I mean, for anybody who's ever wanted to take any piece of office equipment out to a field and whack it with, you know, uh, so, so, so good. I think this is definitely a cult classic because, again, it's like it's a lot of people have seen it because of, you know, being able to relate to it uh, because of their jobs. But I don't think it it, in the moment, in its original moment, like I don't think it got the sort of attention that it truly deserves. And I mean, it's just so I mean, from really, really start to finish, just an amazingly funny film. You know, in the music, lots of licensed music peppered throughout this, uh, throughout the film. But it was just, it was so good. You know, and it, it even just like it, it was funny at the moment until I guess I realized how much hip hop is consumed outside of the black community. But I mean, you know, just seeing dude roll up to damn it feels good to be a gangster <laughs> or whatever, and it's like really dude that's 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 like that's that's your tribe to the office but i guess it you know it really is a low-key like anthems for many a folk that i would have never imagined it for damn it feels good to be a gangster feeding the poor and helping out with their bills although i was born in jamaica now i'm in the u.s making deals damn it feels good to be a gangster that music was so like i i put like a whole bunch of notes to myself of like stuff that they plucked from it. We've talked about my love for like Jay Dilla and the the get this money from Slum Village. We've already explored the fact that that is like one of those samples that got me heavy like interested in Herbie Hancock. You know, there's like uh there's some really good jazz in it too. I mean like you know, really classic stuff that gets uh, put into it. And it's like, but it's done so very seamlessly and sometimes to really funny effect. Like, I think it's like a, what's the song? It's the one, it's got like Peanuts in the title or something like that. Hold on, I'll tell you guys. Peanut Vendor. Peanut Vendor. Like, I think that's the, the moment where like just after the fire or whatever i think where like dudes like walking away like grabbing the stapler or whatever like you know the whole world is basically gone to hell
and it's used to almost cartoonish effect because like that music makes me think of like tom and jerry almost instantly like it, it's got that kind of vibe to it or whatever yeah, yeah um yeah. but it makes sense it's such an obvious choice for that moment man all i could say is it's it's a really good sort of eclectic soundtrack and it's for most of the characters in the film to be white it's just sort of like a not white soundtrack and i'm i'm here for it like i don't actually own it yet but it's definitely on my radar of things to grab when i see it you know because like then it's got that uh take this job which i i felt on many occasions but then you know like cannabis like i i've never really been a huge fan and really i only think about him in the context of like his beef with ll or whatever but you know it, that was just such a funny song and i've been there so many times more than i probably care to admit but it's it's almost got kind of like a i mean i think they went for this but like almost sort of like a bubblegum western sort of country vibe to it too which is like weird but Again, it just worked, man. That that the film is fantastic. I, I I mean, I would go through the plot, but I mean, I think we all know it. And it's again just peppered with really great quotables and just a really great use of music. I would say more, but I think I have enough pieces of flair, so I'll turn it over to you guys. <laughs> I was gonna say the soundtrack's amazing, and there's not a single Michael Bolton song on it. Why should I change my name? He's the one who sucks. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is this could be the entire podcast. We could have taken these six movies and just did quotes the entire yes, time, provided no exposition about what our interest was or where we were when we first saw it, why we liked it. We could have just quoted these movies. They are so quotable. This is, I think, the ultimate quotable movie. It is just so many great one-liners, and Mike Judge is brilliant. Beavis and Butthead, King of the Hill, sure. Like, they're great in their own way. Office Space is so unbelievably good. He develops characters so extremely well. The actors flesh them out even more. Like, it is just so many good lines, one after another after another. Corporate Accounts Payable, Nina speaking, just a moment. That's drilled into my head where I can answer phones at my own job like that if I wanted. Like, it's just, it is the office and how a lot of us feel about the workplace that we occupy. It is unbelievable. And it's it's that lovely release of, if only I could be hypnotized by a man who <laughs> dies of a heart attack to permanently be in my happy place and give zero fucks about the world for the rest of my life truly so good really i uh i don't like my job and uh i don't think i'm gonna go anymore you're just not gonna go yeah won't you get fired i don't know but i really don't like it and uh i'm not gonna go Jason, what I think I love best about both of your choices, the professional and office space, is you chose movies that were cult movies that, to me, felt like you were really cool when you found them because not a lot of people knew them. And office space was definitely that. Like, I remember watching office space and, like, telling people about it and being like, oh my god, this movie is so funny. Like, I don't even work in an office and this is hilarious. But, like, nobody got it. And even the people did did say it. They were like, that was stupid. And I was like, no, like... 
I, I really did feel like a part of something special that I was like, oh my God, I know about the professional. Oh my God, I know Office Space. And when you met another person who had had that also coolness, uh, that's when the quotes would start, right? Like that's all of a sudden you would just like give up English as like a communication tool. And you it's your just, lexicon. It is your quotes. language. Yeah. I'm like, what am I going to do with like 36 issues of Vibe? <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, Peter, just... what's happening? <laughs> Got those TPS reports? Yeah. yeah. Did you get the memo? If that report to me, that'd be great. <laughs> it's the same thing that kind of that golden age of The Simpsons was. It is once you knew you were in the club and you could just bounce off the language to one another because you're the cool kids. And yeah, I agree with Anthony, Jason, your two are those movies that once you see them, you're part of the cool kids club, but not like the real cool kids club. Like the kids who sit together at the, the lunch table, you're part of the real, like the underground cool kids club. They're both sort of like rites of passages for sure. At least that's how it felt like the first time I saw both of them. I, you know, it's one of those things I could pop in right now. Or like, you know, at one point, because my wife's a big fan of Office Space, like I, I found like some weird box set or whatever that had like, you know, post-it notes with like the office's name and like a couple other random things. I think it may even even had a stapler. Like, you know, it's just like <laughs> random stuff like that. It just makes me smile whenever I think about it. Let's see. You are Michael... Bolton? Yeah. Is that your real name? Yeah. Are you any relation to the pop singer? Just to speak on the soundtrack, I think this is probably the first time I was really introduced to hip-hop. I was never the guy who bought hip-hop discs or, or whatever. It was through this soundtrack that I think I was introduced to really great artists and started to gain an appreciation for the genre and then educate myself from that point on because this is what was office space 94 no 99 99 good grief so i'm i'm late high school so i mean i'm a, a white country kid from northwestern ontario like it's just I, it just wasn't what i was introduced to until i saw office space and got really into it so yeah it was a lovely sort of medium to provide me with a really great musical genre that i'd never really focused on and the tracks are so well put to the scenes in the movie and yeah, it's just brilliant what they were able to do with it. I had no idea that was your entree to hip hop. That's kind of cool. And since we bang, then we do what OG say to. I've got the mind of the man in the mirror, so I'm looking at me vaguely. But I can't say no vaguely. I've got my pistol pawn top. Ready to lick shots nonstop until So for now, I want to take you guys out to dinner. And then I want to go back to my place. And I want to watch Kung Fu. Do you guys want to watch Kung Fu? So awesome. I think we'll leave it there. This, if if this has been a more enthusiastic episode of the podcast, it's because this was really fun to do. To really dive into movies that all three of us have seen, every single one of them, and just show our appreciation and love for it has been a blast. This has been a really fun record. So I just want to thank you guys for being a part of it, for continuing to suffer through some of our other topics when maybe it's not exactly your your jam or your forte. But I think this one was a really fun, just sort of let's gush about the things that we really like as we lay on our stomachs on our on our pink bed 
tradition about boys that we like ah. in our sleepover. Oh my god, amazing. Oh so for our listeners who have enjoyed this lovely quotable conversation, if you want to go ahead and follow us on the social media platforms that we populate, go ahead and find us on Twitter and Instagram at EvenTheScorePod. Uh, if you haven't already, definitely subscribe, rate and review, share our episodes on your podcast app of choice. We are everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon Music, you name it, we are there. Again, I just want to thank Anthony and Jason for being a part of this conversation. We're on a different record night, but I think it's been great energy. So thank you to both of you for participating. You're very welcome. Thanks. I like having nice tits. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, thank you very much for listening to the Even the Score podcast. Take care. (laughs) 